Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Do you know how much alcohol you're actually drinking? 80% of us in Scotland don't. And that's why we are partnering with the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign to highlight how many units of alcohol are actually in our glass. A single measure of Scotch whiskey contains one unit of alcohol. Find out more at scotch-whiskey.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. And the podcast starts now. We're gathered here today at the beginning, the start of something really, really special. Uh, the beginning of a campaign to restore statehood to the nation of Scotland. We want a, a Scotland which is greener, in the words of the Declaration, a Scotland that's greener, that's fairer and more prosperous. And we realise that the, the power of an independent Scotland is necessary to achieve these great ends. Hello and welcome to a Holyrood Sources special. In fact, the first special of a couple to hit your feed this week. I'm Callum McDonald. Thanks very much for being here. Today on the podcast, the first look back at the independence referendum campaign of 2014. And today we'll be hearing from Blair Jenkins, who was the chief executive of the Yes Scotland campaign. Through the week, you'll also hear from Blair McDougall, who led the Better Together campaign, and others as well, as we consider where things are at. Now. now we don't start from, from scratch, we have a, a parliament which has earned its spurs for, for more than a decade. Now we have a parliament to protect our interests and that parliament will hold a referendum in 2014 to give form and, and substance to the people's will. We intend to, to take our case to the people by community activism and by online wizardry. Well, to tell us how the community activism went, and indeed how the online wizardry turned out, let's welcome Blair Jenkins. Well, I was asked to do it. It was something I, I gave a lot of thought to before accepting. What had happened, Callum, was that uh, 
I'd, uh, I'd had a meeting with uh, someone in the SNP um, early in 2012 about some broadcasting conference they were organising and they wanted me to speak at it. And uh, I was, so we were talking about that. And they happened to mention in the course of the conversation that they were, they were going to get involved in this new independence campaign that was going to be launched pretty soon. And I found myself saying that, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not in the party or anything, but if you set up a, a genuinely all parties and no parties uh, campaign for a yes vote, then I would speak in support of that campaign. Uh, and, and then I was contacted, I guess, about a week before the Yes Scotland launch in Edinburgh and, and asked if I would, uh, if I was still of that view and if I would speak at the launch. And I did that. There was some media around that. And in the weeks after that, I was, I was, I was approached and asked if I would take on the role of chief executive. So uh, I did. Do you remember what it kind of felt like at that time by way of enthusiasm or optimism from the yes side? Did it, did it feel like a, a real pivotal moment? Well, yes. I mean, I think the honest truth is that uh, we were starting from a long way behind. That was the realistic uh, situation we were in. But it, it was clearly a, a tremendous opportunity for people who support independence to, to, to have an actual vote on it, which many people thought they wouldn't see in their lifetime of, of an actual vote in Scotland on independence. So it did feel like a huge moment of, of great energy, great optimism. I wasn't uh, starry-eyed about it. Um, I, I knew we were starting from a long way behind and that uh, for us to win the referendum, the stars would really have to fully align for us. But what I did know, what I was confident about was that in the course of a campaign, once we got the debate started, once we got in front of people and started making the case for independence, I was in no doubt that the, the, needle, the needle would swing towards yes. And the only question then was, how far would it swing and would it swing sufficiently far for a majority come referendum day? Um, so I started out from the position of thinking we could win mm -hmm. if everything went our way. But at the very least, I felt we could create a very strong platform for the independence movement going forward. In terms of the, the scale of that task, it, it strikes me that lots of political campaigns can perhaps be inspired by other political campaigns and, and successes that have been witnessed elsewhere, either in the UK, in Scotland or indeed around the world. What, could you base this campaign on anything or was it brand new? I think there were many elements of it that were um, completely new. I mean, I'd been very interested in, in the Obama campaign in the United States, the presidential campaign, and had actually visited America several times during the course of that campaign and was very keen on uh, Barack Obama winning that election. So uh, I, I took a close interest in, in, and in what they were doing on the ground in America. But the, the truth about the, the, the campaign in Scotland was we knew that most of the media, I'm talking about print media here, I mean, most newspapers, if not every newspaper, was going to be against us. We knew that the UK government would throw the kitchen sink at it uh, and, and, and try to uh, blow us away. Um, broadcasters obviously have to take a, an even-handed view, so we, we thought, OK, we've got a fair chance uh, with broadcasters of, of, of getting a, an equal say. But it seemed to me that the type of campaign we had to run and the way that we would win was through a conversational model, that if we could get people engaged in conversation about it, uh, that that was our best chance of, of securing a majority. And as it happened, uh, in the week that my appointment was announced, just a couple of days before uh, it was announced, there was a poll in uh, one of the newspapers, I think it was the Daily Mail, which had yes support at 27%. As a journalist, I knew, well, the first question I'm going to be asked uh, when my appointment is announced is, you know, well, why are you doing this? You haven't got any chance of winning. 
and I was trying to think of uh, what I would say, and and it occurred to me, uh, you know, re remembering my uh, O level arithmetic, all we all we needed to do, all we needed to do, to win was uh, get everyone who was already intending to vote yes to persuade one other person, and we had a majority. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that's what I said. Basically, you know, your job if you if you want independence, and your job between now and um, whenever the referendum is held, and we didn't, of course, know the date at that time is from your circle of friends and family and, and colleagues and things, you will know someone who is currently planning to vote no. From that group, if you can persuade one other person, if we can all do that, then we win. Now, um, uh, certain Scottish journalists who, who shall remain nameless uh, came, came on to me with a very scoffing tone when I said that and, and saying, oh, 100% swing, you know, that, that, that looks very likely, doesn't it? Um, and uh, there was a great degree of scepticism. A couple of them tweeted about it. Uh, when I went back towards the end of the referendum to check those, uh, those tweets, I noticed that they'd been deleted by the journalists in question because uh, as it got closer to referendum day, it looked more likely that we were going to win. Um, so, but I, I knew, as I say, that uh, the, the model was thought to be a conversational one. And what happened almost immediately when we launched was that people started coming into the office or, or contacting us and saying, well, you know, I've persuaded one other person or two other people or whatever. I remember a woman stopping me in the street in Glasgow and saying, I've persuaded eight people who hadn't planned to vote yes to, to vote yes. So people began to get a sense themselves, yes, supporters, who were very energised by the whole notion of the referendum. They began to get a sense that if we could get in front of people, engage people, get them in conversation, then we could shift the dial. Um, and I, I, I thought that... Um, while there were very, uh, you know, there were some outstanding political figures on the yes side, but you know, as a journalist, I knew that uh, that to some extent politicians only reached certain parts of the population, and there was a degree of scepticism even then, back then, ten years ago, about uh, about politicians. And therefore, it was important that the campaign didn't feel like a, a political campaign, didn't feel like a conventional party political campaign. So, for instance, we um, we didn't talk about activists. We talked about volunteers, um, and we, we we shifted the terminology of the campaign away from political party terminology and and tried to uh, make it as non-political, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, as we could, non-party uh, aligned as we could. Those things, I think, helped, um, and I, I do believe. I mean, I think you know. I know we'll come on and talk about where we go from here and all that. Uh, my view is that that conversational model is the best chance of securing an independence majority. It's important that you, you do well in broadcasting uh, uh, opportunities. It's important you get as fair a share of, of coverage in the newspapers as you can. But the key, the key thing is, one, is, is, is those conversations. And the other thing that was very important for, for us, of course, and we knew would be hugely important, was the online campaign, mm. was winning, if you like, on, on, uh, on social media, winning in the major online platforms. It's interesting you say that because it strikes me that, that actually the online platforms, they are quite conversational as well. So actually the whole thing kind of fits together because it feels, I mean, perhaps Twitter's slightly different today than it was 10 years ago, for example, but there is just an ongoing conversation and, uh, and largely about politics on Twitter. So actually, I see what you mean. The whole, the whole thing was a conversation, really. It, it was, and, and the, the, what we tried to tie up was what people were seeing and hearing online with what was physically happening on the ground. It was important that the two things came together. So, it's, again, it's hard to take yourself back to uh, yeah. where things were in 2012, 2013, I mean, in terms of the technology. But really, it was, it was a brand new thing for most people that you could take a photograph and, and almost instantly upload it to Twitter. 
and and share it with everybody. And we started uh, almost from the, the early days of the campaign, organising events which were highly visual in their nature, and 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 where we got groups out, local groups set up and out all over the country, so that on a, on the given day when we were campaigning on you know social justice or whatever. Uh, there would be lots of content out there on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, of our uh, campaigners out on the streets, out talking to people. And it gave everyone a sense of uh, momentum that they could see all this um, activity around the country. Mm. Uh, and it was being, and this was being validated or replicated, if you like, in their own community. I did an interview early on in the campaign, before I knew I was, I was going, to, going to have the job I had. It was just after the launch in Edinburgh, uh, and uh, I did a broadcast interview where they were saying to me, um, uh, you know, that, uh, that it looks like you're too far behind. And I said, well, but you must understand, this campaign is going to be unlike any other campaign Scotland's ever seen. It's going to be, in my view, very community-based. It's going to be very local. Uh, it's not going to be about necessarily about what you hear on the telly from politicians. It's going to be about people you know and like and trust in your own community talking to you about the benefits about, of, of independence. And uh, I think I think that's what shifted the dial as far as it did. Mm. I have to say, when I, when I think back, the, the one one of the things that, that lives as a legacy for me. So I was a student at the time, uh, just coming towards the end of uni, and you could hardly get through ten minutes of your day without talking about the independence referendum or hearing somebody talk about it in the supermarket or, you know, walking down the street or whatever. It was just ever present. And I've never experienced anything like that level of engagement with a, with a democratic process ever. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I took part in a lot of uh, debates around Scotland on uh, in university campuses and college campuses. And what was fantastic was to see how enthused and energised mm. people were. And I mean, on both sides of the debate, I'm not just talking about my own side of the debate. Yeah. Um, I mean, a, a model that we used uh, around Scotland was that um, uh, there'd be a debate in, on, in, in some uh, higher education, further education uh, campus, and there'd be someone on, on from the official campaigns, but then there would be also be two or three speakers from among the student body, uh, speaking for yes and speaking for no. And it, it was fantastic to see such a high standard of contribution. I mean, there's a great deal of talent spotting going on. I mean, I can remember regularly coming back to Glasgow and saying to the, the people in the team from the Green Party, for instance, from the Scottish Greens, you know, oh, you know, I was just doing a debate in Dundee and there was this guy uh, who said he was a Green Party supporter and he was great, you know, so you want to go and talk to him because mm. he, he'd been ideal candidate for you and, and, and that kind of thing. But it was the level of, of engagement, the level of interest was very, very high and it got higher as the, as the, the referendum campaign progressed. You know, it, it, it starts, uh, uh, I think, with largely the yes side enthused at the beginning, and then it just builds. You can feel it building all the way through uh, 2012, 2013, 2014. I remember one of the guys uh, in my team who was uh, who'd had quite a, a, a senior role in the SNP uh, previously, and a year out from the referendum, he said to me, you know, this already feels like the final weeks of a general election mm -hmm. campaign. Uh, you know, we were doing so much media every day, so many public meetings every week. Uh, there was such a, a level of activity. That he said, you know, it just feels like the final stages of a general election campaign. Yeah, it's quite amazing to think about, actually. In terms of what you were saying there about it, kind of being all parties and no parties, uh, you know, it was not a partisan yeah. campaign for Yes Scotland. To what extent did that feel like a battle a lot of the time with political parties, which had huge personalities in them? Obviously, we're thinking of, well, I'm thinking of the SNP and Salmond and Sturgeon. These are big characters, obviously big figures for the yes side. It, it, did it feel like there was a, a tension almost between the campaign and the political parties? 
That was there some of the time. I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny that. To the extent that people, when I took on the job, were, were giving me wise words of warning. <laughs> a couple of people did say to me, well, you know, the SNP have never really been involved in a cross-party, uh, all parties, no parties type campaign before, and, and they, they might find that tricky territory. I knew Alex Salmond rather better than I knew Nicola at the outset of the campaign. I mean, as you know, I was a, you know, a head of news at STV and, and at BBC Scotland. So I'd probably had more fallings out with Alex than any other politician, I think. Uh, just in, in, you know, in, in perfectly yeah. properly, you know, uh, he, he, he wouldn't be happy about something we'd run. I'd be defending it. So I knew him quite well uh, from, from that professional side of things. I didn't know uh, Nicola so well. It was always for me, I was always trying to get the balance right because it, it, it had to be the case that if, if yes was going to win, it, had, it couldn't be seen as just the SNP by another name. Mm. And genuinely, um, you know, as, as someone who wasn't involved in the party in any way, uh, that's how I viewed it. And the, 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 the guy who was chairing my advisory board, Dennis Canavan, uh, a famously independently minded politician, was also of the same view. So we took the view from the beginning that we, we, would, we wanted a good and close working relationship with the SNP, which was important. But we, we had to make clear that um, it was a, this was a big tent, a, you know, a big umbrella campaign, and, and everyone, everyone who was of a democratic persuasion who wanted to vote for independence, whatever else they believed or whatever other form of politics they were involved in or not involved in, they would be welcome in the Yes campaign. It had to be... Um, not just uh, inclusive, but profoundly inclusive, I think, the Yes campaign, and that was very important. Mm. I was also mindful of the fact, I mean, I've, I've always had a healthy respect for politicians because I think there is something very meaningful about being an elected uh, representative of the people. And I was conscious of the fact that um, the, the people I was dealing with in the upper echelons of the SNP were people who'd been quite fairly and properly elected and that was the reason there was going to be a referendum, whereas I was just some guy coming fairly late to things who'd been appointed. So I, I, I felt that, um, that there were people I know in the Yes movement who probably wished me to stand apart from the SNP even more than we did. Uh, equally, there were people in the SNP who I think rather resented the fact that we had any degree of, of, uh, of, of independence, if you like, from the party. It was a tricky balance. I remember a, a senior person in the SNP, I won't, I won't say who, but I remember a senior person uh, when, when it was clear that when I, my appointment was announced, there was a couple of people a little unhappy about it in, within the party. And uh, he said to me, he said, Blair, you've got to understand, uh, he said, it's like your team gets to the, the final of the Champions League. It goes to extra time and penalties, and then the manager decides to bring in somebody from the crowd to take the penalties. Uh, and uh, I, could, I could I could see the point, you know. I mean, uh, you know, I, I had no history of involvement in in the, the movement at all, uh, or in the campaign for independence. You know the etiquette of broadcast journalism. Uh, you don't advertise what your views are mm. on controversial subjects. You don't, you don't, it's, I think it's a foolish person in broadcast journalism who wears the politics on their sleeve. When my appointment was announced, I remember Brian Taylor, who you know, the BBC's longtime political editor in Scotland, and Brian said to me, Blair, I've known you for 25 years. I had no idea you supported <laughs> independence. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, Brian, why, why would you? you know? And, I, and I, I said to him, I've no idea what your view is on the subject. I've still no idea. I've still no idea what Brian Taylor's view is on, uh, on independence because he's, he's just from that tradition, which I think is a good one, mm. that if, you're, if you work in broadcasting, particularly as an editor or as a political presenter, then you really should uh, stay pretty uh, quiet about uh, any political preferences you have. 
You're listening to Blair Jenkins as part of our Independence Referendum specials on Holyrood sources. Still to come, Blair will tell us how he thinks things are looking today for the independence movement, both politically and at activist level, and what needs to change if there were to be a second independence referendum campaign, what needs to change to tip Yes Scotland over the line as far as he's concerned. Stay with us, more Blair Jenkins comes next. I wonder then if, if this is a good point just to consider where things are at now. The, the, the party point fascinates me because now in 2023 there are more independent sporting political parties than there were 10 years ago. And I wonder if that is a good thing or a bad thing for any potential future independence referendum campaign. That I suppose it rather depends on what the relationships are, are like within between the parties. Um, I think you could say the relationship between the Scottish Greens and the SNP is rather closer now than it was uh, when I became Chief Executive Yes Scotland. Um, it was it was that that was quite a tricky relationship uh, for those parties. Uh, I don't think it was any particular secret that uh, uh, Alex Salmond and Patrick Harvey didn't get on particularly well. That mm. was true. I mean, there was a, a, a deal of mutual suspicion there. Uh, in my experience, I think Nicola Sturgeon and Patrick Harvey got on very well. They, they seem to be to have a, a pretty good working relationship. Whether it's a good thing to have more than one party, I think in a democracy it's always good to have choice, it's always good to have more parties, provided they're working cooperatively. The party you're obviously slightly uh, alluding to is Alaba, mm-hmm. and whether in a sense it can be folded into a broader independence campaign. I, I don't know the answer to that because I'm not inside the political 
uh, bubble in that sense. I can see there are some difficult and some strange relationships in there. If, uh, if an independence, uh, well, I, there will be another independence referendum. If the Yes campaign is to succeed, I think it's important that um, there's as broad and inclusive a campaign as can be managed. We would just have to hope that when we get to that point, that um, the personalities that, that are leading the parties mm. are, are capable of uh, working to a common cause. Well, I think we've got to think to the future, not just this year, next year, the next 10 and 20 years. Think to the sort of world my children, my grandchildren are going to live in. And it's clear that we ought to stop thinking about the UK as some unitary, centralised uh, state where all power resides in an old-fashioned view of Westminster sovereignty. We've got to think of the diversity of a partnership between the different nations. We've got to think of power sharing, which is effectively what we're doing with devolution. And when you come to that uh, conclusion, you realise that Britain should be responsible for pooling and sharing its resources, provide pensions, social security, defence, but there are powers that the Scottish Parliament could have that it doesn't have at the moment that deal with the domestic affairs of, of Scotland. So we stay as part of the United Kingdom because it's to everybody's advantage, uh, but it's important to recognise that the UK has now changed forever. What powers do you want to see in the Scottish Parliament? Well, I'd like, first of all, us to state that the purpose of the UK is to pool and share resources. I'd like the Scottish Parliament to be seen as permanent and not just at the whim of Westminster. I'd like a division of powers that recognise that Scotland could probably do more in administering uh, areas of health, transport, uh, employment, uh, and of course uh, areas like the Crown Estates Commission, which is about the land of uh, Scotland. And I'd like to see a tax-sharing arrangement that recognised that we raise UK taxes to pay for UK pensions and other things, uh, but in Scotland the domestic affairs that are voted on in the Scottish Parliament, at least 40% of the spending as a result of the distribution of powers should be paid for by taxes raised within Scotland. There was nothing that happened, Callum, in all honesty. There was nothing that I felt uh, as we came towards um, referendum day itself. There was nothing that derailed us. Mm. And there was, nothing, there was no point at which I thought, you know, oh, goodness, you know, uh, we've probably lost now because this intervention uh, will, will turn out to have been decisive. I never felt that. And it's odd at some points, in fact, things which were to some, in some way presented in the media as negatives for us were actually positives. Uh, for instance, if I think back to, um, you'll remember, uh, in the early months of... Uh, uh, 2014, there was a sort of joint declaration uh, by George Osborne and Ed Balls and uh, the, the Lib Dems finance person uh, at the time, uh, ruling out the, the notion uh, of a currency union. Mm. Now, at the time, uh, that was presented as a negative, uh, as a, so it would be a negative for the Yes campaign. However, we didn't view it that way uh, because uh, we, you know, there was a certain amount of information coming to us, if I could put it that way, from, from inside Whitehall. And one of the things that, that I'd been told was that uh, uh, the, uh, the three uh, Westminster parties uh, who were opposed to independence would only formally rule out a currency union. They didn't want to do it because they thought it was slightly risky. And they would only do it if they felt they were at risk of losing. When it came out, uh, I, two things occurred to me. One is I, I thought the Labour Party were damaging themselves in Scotland by um, standing side by side with George Osborne on that issue. Um, and I, it, it brought back that, that memory very fresh to me, thinking, oh, well, OK, these, these guys clearly think they're looking at their polling, we're looking at our polling. They obviously think there's a, a, a decent chance here they're going to lose and they're worrying. So something, sometimes things perhaps behind the scenes were not perceived in quite the same way that the media were presenting them. You'll remember that uh, the first poll that showed yes ahead came out, I think it was about 10 days 
ahead of the, the referendum. The 7th of now, September. our own polling at that point, <laughs> well, well, well done, uh, our, uh, the, the Rupert Murdoch poll, the, the, the Sunday Times poll. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we knew for some time from our own polling, we, our polling was telling us we were in a narrow lead um, for had been for several weeks, so it didn't surprise us when that poll came out. While it was interesting because it was the first time, it, it sort of panicked everybody on the other side of the debate, debate uh, because for the first time here was a published poll saying that, that yes, we're in, we're in a leading position. Um, for us, it wasn't a huge surprise. I can remember people in the SAP, not Alex or, or Nicola, um, a couple of folk saying things to me like, oh, well, you know, try not to move into a leading position too early uh, because they'll, they'll, they'll just promise more devolution uh, and, and, and you know, that might, that might lead to us losing. You know, as if, as, if, as if, you know, opinion polls are something you can sort of turn on and off, you know, mm. uh, or, or, or support could be corralled in that way. Mm. We were all hoping that any poll showing us in the lead would not happen until fairly late in the campaign. When it actually did come out, uh, I was quite content with the timing because I thought it was too late for any credible offer of enhanced devolution to be made. I think what was offered looked fairly panicked. And it's my duty to be clear about the likely consequences of a yes vote. Independence would not be a trial separation, it would be a painful divorce. And as Prime Minister, I have to tell you what that would mean. It would mean we no longer share the same currency. It would mean the armed forces we've built up together over centuries being split up forever. It would mean our pension funds being sliced up at some cost. It would mean the borders we have would become international and may no longer be so easily crossed. It would mean the automatic support that you currently get from British embassies when you're traveling around the world, that would come to an end. It would mean over half of Scottish mortgages suddenly, from one day to the next, being provided by banks in a foreign country. It would mean that interest rates in Scotland are no longer set by the Bank of England with all the stability and security that promises. And it would mean for any banks that remain in Scotland, if they ever got into trouble, it would be Scottish taxpayers and Scottish taxpayers alone that would bear the costs. There's no going back to the way things were a vote for no means real change. And we've spelt out that change in practical terms with a plan and a process. If we get a no vote on Thursday, that will trigger a major unprecedented programme of devolution with additional powers for the Scottish Parliament. Major new powers over tax, spending, some welfare services. We've agreed a timetable for that stronger Scottish Parliament, a timetable to bring in the new powers that will go ahead if there is a no vote. A white paper by November, put into draft legislation by January. This is a timetable that's now agreed by all the main political parties and set in stone. You know, you remember the, the three amigos, um, uh, Cameron, uh, Miliband and Clegg, uh, uh, rushing up to Scotland to, to promise that, uh, that all would be wonderful if we would only vote no. I actually don't think that was terribly decisive in the outcome of the, the referendum. The, the truth about the result of the referendum is that Scotland was not ready in 2014 to vote yes. And I think that's uh, what, what demonstrates that we ended up, in a sense, where the country was, 55-45, mm. was that more or less every poll 
that followed on from the referendum until we get to the Brexit vote. Every poll between the uh, 2014 referendum and the Brexit vote in 2016 had had more or less the same outcome as the actual uh, vote itself. Mm. I want to just try and get in, inside the room, as it were, of the Yes campaign, per- perhaps particularly around that that the, 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 the change in polling that you mentioned there, Blair, in the, in the weeks leading up to. Um, what was it like in there? Who were you? Who were you with? How were these conversations going when you when you clocked this poll lead might be might be going your way and and might have just indicated that there was a chance of success? What was it like in there? Well, we felt it was going well. Um, you, you know, usually any meetings I was at, there would, there would be uh, people like Alex Hammond and Nicola Sturgeon and John Swiddy, other leading people in the party would be would be the part of the discussion and and people from the the yes campaign including myself uh, and and other people would be in the room also but so we were we were we were feeling um good about things the the feedback from on the ground was was very positive the polling was looking good we felt it was moving our way we were never complacent um because there is a there is a um, the, the the received wisdom uh for people who've studied uh referenda internationally is that there is usually a swing back to the status quo in the final week 10 days of the campaign uh, that if you're going to get a, a really a, a significant movement really late in the campaign it's more likely to be back in favor of no change so we were always slightly conscious of that the other thing is um you know a lot of our uh uh, feedback was from door doorstep canvassing. You know, we were doing that. We were, we were doing a huge amount um, of doorstep canvassing. Uh, the, the SNP people were saying that the numbers of, of canvas returns we were getting in the later stage of the campaign were more than they, they ever did uh, in a party contest, you know, in a general election or in a Scottish election. So we were getting all that data. Now, people who've, I, I hadn't, I had no experience of uh, canvassing prior to the referendum. I did rather a lot of it during the referendum, but I had no, I had no experience of it. People who've been doing it for years and years and years tell me that people don't lie to you on the doorstep. If you knock the door and say, you know, we're from the Yes campaign, they won't say, oh yes, I'm, I'm voting for you guys, if they're intending to vote. No, they won't do that. They might say, oh, I'm still making up my mind or I'm still undecided. Whereas, in fact, they had probably decided they were voting no. So I think to some extent, and I don't, this is not entirely a scientific explanation, as it were, uh, I think to some extent uh, the figures that we were looking at might have been slightly inflated uh, by um, people who were almost certainly going to vote no telling us they were still undecided. Because most of the data we had, and I think to be fair, most of the, 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 the polling data was suggesting that people who were still undecided, genuinely undecided, towards the end of the campaign were probably more likely to vote yes. We were encouraged by what the polls were telling us. We were encouraged by what the, the people on the ground around Scotland were telling us. But we knew it was going to be close. It was always, it was always going to be close. Yeah. In terms of then the vow, Jeff Aberdeen, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, on the podcast will often yeah. refer to the vow as just one of the most sort of surreal moments in some ways of politics, basically ever. Um, how do you reflect on the vow by from David Cameron and, and Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg? I mean, it has become something of a... I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to find the words to describe it. It's almost like an independence folklore humorous story because of the, because of the, the legacy of it is these three guys panicking, basically, and, and kind of rushing around, almost not sure what to do. Um, and I'm just, I'm just intrigued to know what, what you think and what it was like at the time when you, when you saw the vow and you were, you know, analysing it and what it actually meant. Well, we thought it, uh, the way we looked at it was it was uh, a measure of it was it was driven by fear 
rather than any genuine desire to improve the devolution settlement for Scotland. And we thought that's how it would be received by the public. Um, I, as I say, I know that people, there are other people who view this differently. There's nothing I've ever seen or heard that convinced me that that was a, a big influence on how people voted um, at the end of the day. I think it was too late to be, to be really credible. It was, it was so obviously because they felt there was a serious uh, chance of losing. Uh, and, and, and so I don't think it would have nudged people back towards a no vote who were, who were, who were going to vote yes. I, I think what's probably true, Callum, is um, I think a lot of people, uh, and I do understand this, while we were hugely engaged for a long time before referendum day, a lot of people only started really, really focusing in on it in terms of you know, how am I going to vote quite late in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of people found it genuinely difficult. I remember being, uh, I was up in Elgin, uh, my, my hometown, um, just a couple of weeks after the referendum and uh, bumped into somebody, a, a sco- an old school friend whom I hadn't seen, I think, since school days. And uh, he, he, he stopped me, he actually was on a bike going past me, he got off the bike and came over and, uh, uh, and he started talking about the referendum. Lots of people wanted to talk about the referendum, mm-hmm. uh, particularly people who voted no, wanted to explain to me why. So he said he'd voted no, but he'd lost sleep about it. He'd agonised over it because he had two grown up kids and they were voting yes. Uh, and he, he felt he, he, he felt it was right to vote no, but he was really worried that, that it was their future and they, they were going a different way. And uh, it's, it's interesting, when he talked about how difficult he'd found it and, 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 and what a problem he'd found it to be, uh, that chimed with what a lot of other people were saying to me. I, I think people were really wrestling with uh, the issue of how they were going to vote at the end of the day. Um, and it was one of the, it was one of the interesting um, consequences of the referendum for me was um, I, I went from someone who you know hardly anyone would have known in the street to someone who'd been on telly most days for, for a period of time and I was getting stopped quite a lot and, and as I say no voters wanted to say want to explain why they'd voted no uh, and yes voters wanted to talk about the campaign and largely to say hey we love the campaign and, and uh, when's the next one and all that sort of thing <laughs> um, but I, I do think it's, it's back to the point you were making earlier there was just this extraordinary level of engagement mm. people had a real sense of, of history and a real sense that uh, you know however you voted that this was a, a significant democratic moment in the life of the country yeah definitely do you think fondly of the campaign Blair when you when you think back are there are there moments are there days are there nights where you thought do you know what that, that was a real high point per- personally for you I I, I, fe- I feel enormously privileged to have had the role I had. I was very proud of the campaign. Um, I, I felt that uh, almost everything we wanted to achieve in terms of the tone and content of the campaign we achieved. Uh, I, I was really pleased by the the, the way we, we the, the grassroots campaign just took off and took off and grew and grew around Scotland. Um, so all of those things were, were enormously pleasing. I have to say, it, is, it was by a long way the hardest thing I'd ever done. Mm. Uh, as you know, I mean, I, I, having held quite a few uh, senior um, pressurised, as it were, roles in broadcasting. I'd never done anything as full on as this. This was every waking moment from when you woke up in the morning to when you went to bed at night. Mm. Um, and of course, if you care about a cause, as I, I obviously I was, you know, deeply committed and remain deeply committed to to Scottish independence. Um, then that that weight of, of responsibility was 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 something I felt quite strongly during the campaign. You know, don't screw up because this is really, really important. Um, so that meant that, that made it a different kind of experience for me. 
Uh, and it was, um, you know, even though I'd been in jobs that, that were demanding and where you'd get, you know, the phone calls at night and all that stuff and, and decisions to be made, um, this was a, a different order of magnitude. Mm. You really felt that uh, every day going into work, you felt good about it, you felt enthused by it, but you're also acutely aware of the the, the responsibility, and uh, you know that was that was something that was a, a strong thing for me through the campaign. So it was it was stressful, and uh, funnily enough, I, um, uh, I remember going for a, a, a sort of regular sort of medical you know MOT sort of thing uh, a couple of months after the referendum. And normally I just I would have breezed through these things and everything's fine. And um, most of my readings, the detail, most of my readings were completely wrong, not where you'd want them to be. And this was just this was just a result of um, you know you know cholesterol levels and blood pressure, yeah. uh, blood sugar levels. It was just it was just because of the the the, the, the stress and the pressure of the campaign. Mm. Um, so that was very real. It was uh, a difficult two years doing that job, but I'm so glad I did it. Uh, I, I just uh, enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, as I say, I felt very proud of the campaign. Towards the end of the, the, the campaign period, two polling companies independently, without reference to either of the campaigns, asked a polling question about, you know, however you plan to vote in the referendum, uh, which campaign do you think has been the most effective? Each poll produced a two-thirds majority saying that the Yes Scotland campaign had been a more effective campaign uh, than, the, than the Better Together campaign. So I, I felt, and that was interesting, and, and it, um, it showed, I think, that even among people who were voting no, I remember that was an interesting thing, there was a significant percentage of those who voted no who thought that Yes Scotland had run the better campaign. I remember speaking to, there was an academic who, who's made uh, quite a study of referendums around the world, he said to me after the referendum, it was actually very, very unusual. He couldn't think of another instance where, if you like, um, where one side had won the campaign but lost the referendum. But I think that's where yes ended up. I do think we, we won the campaign and, and we lost the referendum. We came closer to winning than most people thought was mm -hmm. likely. Um, I remember at the beginning of the campaign, you know, I'd be sitting outside radio studios or television studios and there'd be someone I knew from the other side, you know, a politician or, or whatever from the other side. And they'd say, oh, Blair, why, why, are, you, um, why are you involved in this? Uh, when it comes to referendum day, your share of the vote, it's not even going to start with a three, it's going to start with a two. I think at the time they genuinely believed this. They genuinely thought that uh, once the debate started, that uh, we we would be you know wiped out by the sheer uh, force of argument coming the other way. I always knew that the the, the shift would be towards yes. Mm. I I always knew that, uh, and um, you know I was as I say I, I just feel very privileged and proud to have been able to be part of that campaign. And so that brings me to this question, which is if not those people, uh, those leaders, those, ca those campaigners, yourself, if not those people and that campaign, then what people and what campaign would win it for yes now? I think it's, it's, I think it's important that a, a new campaign, and I believe there will be a new campaign uh, uh, coming, and I think it has to be, again, all parties and no parties. And I think new people will emerge, which is, which is absolutely um, right and proper. I don't seek out uh, media appearances nowadays. Uh, I think there is a time to uh, you know, get off the stage and, and, and make way for other people. Um, I sometimes wish other people would take the same uh, view of, of, uh, of the fact that it's good to, at some point, know when it's time to leave the stage and, and make way for uh, younger and uh, different voices. Um, but I think 
how can I put this? The, the notion of Scottish independence has been around all of my uh, adult life. Uh, it's been there. When I was a student, by and large, most of the support for Scottish independence came from people who had a, a cultural uh, view of uh, Scottish independence, if you like, the, the, the view of Scottish history, which was Scotland was an independent nation, therefore should be again. Their views were coming from that position. I think what drove the 2014 campaign, and I think we'll, we'll secure an independence majority in the future, is the the fact that, uh, that independence will achieve a, a better way of life for people in Scotland. That's the only reason I support independence. Uh, I support independence because I believe it will create a better future for the people of Scotland. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't campaign for independence. Um, and I don't just mean I don't just mean a better life in a material sense, uh, you know, of, of having more money or whatever. I mean in terms of. Uh, uh, health and well-being, uh, a sense of community, uh, a sense that the society is structured the way you want it to be structured. I, I, I do think that, I mean, I, I'm of the view that there needs to be a, a lot of change in how we run our society, how we run our economy. I, I, I favour a, a model of redistribution. And I think it's those kind of arguments around that kind of vision for Scotland which I, I think will secure um, a majority for independence. I expect a second referendum. I think there will be a second referendum, a new referendum in the next 10 years. Um, I think it's highly likely, uh, if not certain, it's highly likely, I think, that yes, we'd win a new referendum. Uh, and uh, uh, I would very much hope to be part of that. Are the people that are in place right now who want independence, and I do mean politically, are they the right people to see that through? I think it's too early to say. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about Hamza, uh, uh, I think it's too early to say with him. He's taken over at a very difficult time. I mean, it's been a year from hell for the SNP, really, when you think about it. Uh, uh, and he's, he's, he's taken the job on at a very uh, difficult time. I mean, he's, uh, I, I know him a bit. Um, I haven't seen him much since the referendum, but I had quite a lot of contact with him during the referendum. He's a very talented guy. He's a very likeable guy. Nicola's a, a very hard act to follow. Alex Salmond was a very hard act to follow. Can he achieve what they achieved? Uh, can he can he get, get, take part of those heights? I don't know. Um, uh, as I say, I think he started at a difficult time. I think the jury is still out. I think things will be a lot clearer once a line is finally drawn under the police investigation, whatever that ends up. I think once once that is uh, concluded in, in whatever way and uh, he's able to, uh, you know, get into the, a dialogue, if you like, with, with people in Scotland, then uh, then there's no reason why he can't be the person who who achieves what the, the previous leaders weren't able to do. But it, it is, I think, a bit early to say for him. Mm. But whoever the people are, Callum, I think new new figures, I think new new, new people will emerge. The one thing we know now, uh, it's, why it's why it's a mistake probably for any of us to try to predict the future. The one thing we know in British politics and Scottish politics now is that things move very fast. Mm. You know, life comes at you pretty fast nowadays. Uh, you know, if you think back to December of last year, polls in December of last year were, were, were showing the SNP on course to win a, a majority uh, in Holyrood at, at Westminster, had it been a Westminster election. I think independence was sitting about 56% in the polls. You know, so uh, things move very quickly. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot depends on what happens with events in the UK. It's not just about what happens in Scotland. I think if, if Keir Starmer is the next Prime Minister of the UK, then a lot will, uh, Scotland's view, I think, will depend very heavily on what Labour does in government. 
You've just heard there actually some fascinating insights, some fascinating reflections, some fascinating considerations too from Blair Jenkins, the CEO of Yes Scotland, in the couple of years leading up to and including the 2014 independence referendum. Our thanks to Blair Jenkins for taking part. And just to mention that tomorrow in your feed, you'll be able to hear from Blair McDougall, who was leading the Better Together campaign. Uh, he was the boss of that, coordinating the various politicians, the three amigos, as you heard uh, Blair Jenkins refer to them there. Uh, We're doing a couple of special episodes for you this week just to consider the state of play when it comes to independence. Of course, you'll hear from Jeff and Andy on this through the week as well, but we thought you might want to just sit down and listen to these interviews with some of these key players at the time and to hear how they consider things are looking today. So make sure you follow and subscribe. You can follow for free. You can subscribe for 4 99 That takes the adverts out of your listening experience. So if you'd like to do that, do that on Apple Podcasts or on Acast. And make sure you stick around, because we'll be speaking to you again very soon. Music